Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Sam Bobley, co-founder and CEO of Acrobus, an infrastructure company that transforms documents into data analytics with incredible accuracy designed to help financial services companies make high-quality decisions at unprecedented speed. Sam started building Acrobus in his parents' kitchen when he was only 22 and seven years later, the company employs nearly a thousand people globally and has raised close to $50 million in equity from top VC funds, including Stage 2 Capital, QED, Fintech Collective, Oak, HCFT, and Bullpen Capital. We talked about company origins, Sam's entrepreneurial journey, from idea to strategies on building and hiring the initial team, finding product market fit, and how he decided to shift and expand his client base, the fast-changing and fast-moving fintech ecosystem, his thoughts on the road ahead, and a whole lot more. And now, please join me in an absolutely fascinating conversation with Sam Bobley. Sam, welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Really excited to have you here. Maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your story and a little bit about yourself and how you found uh, yourself in, in your current role. Hey, Miguel. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate you having me on the show and happy 2021. And I think it's safe to say it's going to be a better year for everybody. So excited to, to kick it off on the right foot. As it relates to my personal story, I, I was kind of taught to be an entrepreneur from a young age. My dad is a serial entrepreneur. He started a bunch of different companies over the course of his career. And when I was growing up, he was building and scaling up a, a financial technology payments company called Phone Charge that he ended up selling when I was in high school. So I was watching my dad build Phone Charge and ultimately reach an exit. And I always wanted to follow in his footsteps and was kind of naturally interested in the financial technology space. And then right when I completed undergrad, one of my high school buddies and I were brainstorming on different ideas and we kind of stumbled upon what ultimately became Oculus and you know, started building the company. Can't believe it. It's been almost seven years ago now when I was 22, and it's been a, a really awesome ride. That's incredible. And you know, Sam, you and I have talked in the past, and I happen to remember you mentioning that you were brainstorming the idea in your kitchen, and either your father was walking by or he was there with you, but he had a role at the beginning, right? And that's pretty unique. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? A hundred percent. My dad is, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have my dad as a mentor and a, a best friend and support system in building the business over the years. And the original genesis of Oculus actually came from a conversation with my dad where he was telling me about, about his experience with an elder law attorney. And the elder law attorney was complaining to my dad about having to review hundreds or thousands of pages of financial statements, bank statements, and other financial documents as part of every long-term care Medicaid application. When someone applies for Medicaid coverage to enter a nursing home, they are 
federally required to submit 60 months of financials to prove their eligibility. And traditionally, an elder law attorney or a nursing home or some sort of healthcare professional reviews those documents page by page, line by line to prepare the Medicaid application and determine if the person should be eligible or not. And, you know, when my dad was telling me about this process, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I said, why in this day and age are well-paid lawyers and paralegals reviewing financial documents page by page, line by line? There has to be a way to do this with technology in a complete and automated fashion. And it kicked off a research project. So my buddy, John Gersey, who was my high school friend, and I started kind of researching this problem in my parents' kitchen. We were just trying to understand what's out there. We researched OCR, optical character recognition technology, data capture technology. We tried to understand why can't you just pull all the data financially directly from institutions. So we looked into companies like Yodely, who was the leading player in bank aggregation at the time. And what we realized in that process was that there was a gap. Bank aggregation and pulling data directly from financial institutions and sources is fantastic when it works. You can't always retrieve the data directly for a variety of reasons, which I'm happy to go into. And then on the OCR data capture side, it's just simply not accurate enough. When machines are trying to parse information from financial documents that can come in a wide variety of formats, different image quality, rotated sideways, upside down, there's all sorts of little nuances. Really, machines can only get you about 80, 85% of the way there. Machines really particularly struggle with semi-structured and unstructured documents like bank statements and pay stubs and invoices where the format varies quite significantly. So what we saw was there's multiple technologies out there that solve part of the problem, but there was no core infrastructure technology out there that could take financial documents and data regardless of the source and deliver the end user with perfectly accurate actionable data that could be used for a high-stakes financial decision. So while the initial genesis was to automate the Medicaid process for elder law attorneys, and by the way, we've done quite well with that. We have 100-plus elder law attorneys on the platform using the product. Shortly into our journey, we realized that the same technology breakthrough idea we had, which I can talk more about in a minute, the human-in-the-loop piece that was really the breakthrough, that was super applicable to lenders and various other types of companies in the financial services realm. And the classic adage of building a startup is you got to be in the right place at the right time, right? So just as fintech lending and this whole fintech boom was taking off, our product was entering the market. And we quickly realized that fintech was a fantastic market opportunity and a bigger market opportunity for us than accountants and attorneys. So it's been seven years. How big is the company today? So believe it or not, we're closing in on a thousand people globally. I mentioned briefly that our secret sauce is our human-in-the-loop operation. So the way the system works is a document comes in, any format or quality, bank statements, pay stubs, tax documents, you name it, any type of financial document. Basically, we have a pretty extensive library of document coverage these days. So what we decided to do was not reinvent the wheel when it comes to OCR. We saw that there were dozens of different OCR data capture products out there, and we said, hey... Let's just use best-in-class products that are out there because OCR is kind of reaching the ceiling in terms of the accuracy that it can achieve. So what we do instead is we use a data capture gateway to intelligently select the best OCR or extraction engine based on the document. So for example, if a bank statement comes in, we'll use Google technology. If a, a tax document comes in, we'll use Amazon Textract. If a parsable document comes in, we can just pull out all of the metadata using a PDF tool. 
We then layer in our own proprietary machine learning and computer vision models to automatically contextualize and verify all the information we can. From there, any data fields that we can't automatically confirm, we slice into smaller tasks and route to our own employees who perform human-in-the-loop quality control. We've really gamified that system and perfected it over the last seven years where the work is parallelized so that dozens of workers can work on the same file at the same time. And there's all sorts of algorithmic QC checks built in. So for example, the same task will be pumped to a statistically significant number of workers. And we'll use gold tasks, which are tasks that we have the answer keys to constantly evaluate our workers, mathematical checks and reconciliations wherever possible. Long story short, no matter what the document looks like coming in, if it's readable by the human eye, we'll return perfectly accurate data via API directly to our customers. And that same perfect data is used as a feedback loop to constantly train our models to get smarter, thus mitigating the need for human intervention on future passes, which increases our turnaround time speed and customer experience. So that process explanation is a long-winded way of explaining how many people we have. So we have about 900 globally, about 120 or so in New York in our headquarters. We're located in the financial district downtown, a couple blocks away from the World Trade Center. We have another hundred or so corporate employees in India. We are incorporated in India, so no third parties whatsoever. We have everything under the Octos umbrella. And then we also have three verification facilities where we do the quality control. So in addition to the 220 or so corporate employees, we have another 650 to 700 pure verification quality control staff. And in total, we have four offices globally. A really fascinating and impressive growth. So kudos to you on that. Now, Sam, as you well know, our audience are entrepreneurs like yourself, right? And we have listeners who are building companies really at all stages. I think it would be very interesting to kind of hear about your initial challenges, the initial journey, how you went about you know, hiring the first employees and how you went about building that technology. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely challenging in the early days. Firstly, we kind of scrapped together funding from family and friends and some angel investors. And, you know, in the early days, it's uh, it's challenging to raise money just on, on an idea, especially when you're a 22-year-old kid with, without experience to point to. And it's also just deflating to get a lot of no's from people in the fundraising process. And it's critical to have the persistence to keep pushing through and you know, keeping the lights on long enough to demonstrate the proof points to really take the next stage in the company's growth. For us, I grew up in Long Island on the North Shore in Nassau County. As I mentioned, my co-founder and I started building in, in my parents' kitchen. And we then moved to, we called it the basement bunker office in Glen Cove, which is a few miles away from where I grew up. And it's not a super attractive place from a recruiting perspective. It's kind of like 10 miles north of the LIE exit and 50 miles away from the city. And I would say that Glen Cove is not exactly the high talent density from an engineering perspective. But what we did is we contacted local colleges. So our first engineering hires all came from Hofstra University, which was about you know, 25, 30 minutes away from where we were building. We were fortunate enough to get a couple fantastic engineers who were about my age at the time to come in and build the MVP version of the product. And I think the, the key is, it really is true, right? You read about it in the books, but it really is absolutely critical to focus on getting just something minimal out the door that customers can play with, test, give you feedback on, iterate. And for us, we got the beta out the door in 2015. We had accountants, attorneys, 
various professionals testing out the product. And during that beta period in 2015, we got such fantastic feedback. And in fact, people asking to give us their credit card information because they, they were ready to start paying for the product. And once that happened, we said, you know, we're, we're ready to take this thing up a notch. So it was at that point in time that we then moved to New York City, raised additional funding and started really professionalizing the technical product and operations team to take the business to the next level. But the early days were definitely some of the most challenging and most fun times at the company. No, fascinating. And, and so talking a bit about your customers, so you mentioned you have plenty of law firms, you have fintechs right, as part of your customers. How about more mature financial institutions? Great question. So for us, we started with accountants and attorneys. We launched the product and began generating revenue in 2016. And in 2016, we were introduced through a mutual connection to one of the largest non-bank small business lenders, a company called Strategic Funding Source, who has now changed their name to Capitus. They're always like, top 10 or top 15 in origination volume in non-bank small business lending. And we went in and did our standard product demonstration for the CEO and the head of product there. And instantly they said, we've been searching for a product like this for years, and this is exactly what we need. And we said back to them about how many documents or how many pages does your team manually review every month to try to get a sense of the size of the opportunity. And the CEO pointed out to a bullpen of a few dozen credit analysts, underwriters, data entry professionals, just keying in data page by page, line by line, and said, oh, it's got to be north of 300,000 per month. My eyes almost fell out of my head. I could not believe the volume that he was sharing. And keep in mind, at the time, our accountants or attorney customers were doing a couple hundred or a couple thousand pages per month. So to get one customer that was doing 300,000 pages, it was quite significant for us. And we immediately recognized the need to pivot the business and focus on fintech lending which was a risky decision, right? Because we did have a nice growing base of accountants and attorneys. And in fact, we even had a term sheet from a top VC who wanted to fund us with institutional capital based on the accountant and attorney business growth. So it was a risk to kind of throw that to the side and say, we want to build specific features for fintech lenders. But it ended up being one of the best, if not the best decision we made in in company history. Fintech lenders have this rare combination of high average customer value and short sales cycles. It's like exactly what you're looking for. And we also saw an opportunity to really crush it in a small pond and use that as a launching pad to get into the bigger ocean, which of course is more traditional financial institutions. So 2016, we said, hey, we're going to double down on fintech. We're going to focus on product speed. Fintech lenders are obsessed with speed and customer experience. And we knew we needed to make our product faster. We're going to focus on fraud detection and analytics. Our V1 of the product, we just take documents, turn it into perfectly accurate data. Once we got into the fintech lending space, we realized there's a massive opportunity to layer business intelligence on top of the data to determine was the document or the borrower in any way. Let's get a deeper sense of the borrower's financial health, the cash flow profile of the business. Let's see what their revenue is. Let's see if they've taken loans from competitors, if they have negative balance days. And we really shifted from a company that was analyzing documents to a company that was providing credit data infrastructure for these fintech lenders. Today, we service more than 100 fintech lenders. We have customers like PayPal, Intuit, Square, Bluevine, SoFi, Lending Club. You know, A lot of the major players in the space now use Oculus for various different document analysis use cases. 
So the, the fintech lending space is, is humming and our business is, is like a well-oiled machine at this point, but it really is still the building block to the next phase, right? So we now think about the business in three buckets. Fintech lending is our core where we've achieved our success over the years. The next vertical that we're super excited about and is just amazingly timely is the mortgage space, right? We did an analysis and we said, what's similar to fintech lending, but larger? And the answer is mortgage. 5,000 plus mortgage lenders, every mortgage application contains a couple hundred pages worth of documentation. Absolutely massive TAM and particularly coming out of the pandemic, there's just such an urgent need for mortgage lenders to digitize and automate their back office. So the mortgage vertical has now launched and it's going well. And then the third vertical, which you know we have also launched and we're focused on you know, pushing the gas pedal on moving forward is our banking and KYC vertical. Again, very similar. Banks are looking to replicate a lot of the underwriting processes and customer experience that fintech lenders have achieved. And Octolis is now helping banks with new customers opening accounts for credit cards or for a regular checking account, as well as you know, consumer lending products, commercial lending, student lending, small business lending, similar underwriting automation to what we do in the fintech space. Yeah, I worked for two mega banks in the past, and I was always blown away how about a third of their budget would go to this type of processes, compliance, KYC, AML. So if you're talking about 300000 for one large fintech lender, for banks, it's going to be in the millions, right? And definitely going to appreciate what you have to offer. So your work, you have a global team, but your work focused mostly on the US. Is that correct? Our customers are predominantly U.S. customers. The U.S. is a massive total addressable market for us. We have gotten pulled into other countries via our customers. Some of our very large customers have global operations. And if we crush it in the U.S., they say to us, can you take on work for us in the U.K. or Germany or the Netherlands? So we cover a few different two dozen countries or so. From a tech and operations perspective, we can handle any documents that use alphanumeric character sets. But from a go-to-market strategy point of view, we try to focus on the U.S. and kind of let our customers opportunistically pull us into other geographies at certain times. Understood. Understood. Now, obviously, we are in early 2021, but there's still a big elephant in the room, and that is COVID, right? How has COVID affected the company, your clients, and just how you think about managing you know, remote teams? Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, a super challenging year and an unprecedented year, 2020. And it really, you know, in a lot of ways made us stronger, fighting through all of the challenges that COVID threw our way. From an optimist perspective, COVID in the short term was painful, midterm favorable, long term, unbelievably positive. When the pandemic first hit, I give significant kudos to our operations team. I have a fantastic business partner, our chief operating officer, Vic Dua. And we have a handful of other really strong operations leads who were able to pretty seamlessly transition our teams in India to a secure work from home environment. It ended up creating revenue opportunities for us. A lot of companies who were not as nimble to transition their outsourced operations to work from home were kind of stuck without workers to handle the incoming document volume. And because we were able to transition so smoothly, we ended up taking on work from some companies, even from some companies that the service level might look like editor to us, which was pretty exciting. From a revenue perspective, our core small business fintech lenders were hit really hard when the pandemic first hit. In late March and early April, ongoing small business lending volume 
was impacted by as much as 80%. So we really saw the daily and weekly application volume plummet when economic uncertainty was at an all-time high. We were able to offset that to some extent, and, and also it was a real kind of goodwill and feel-good thing for the company to do by leaning into the PPP program. So we built documentation We built workflows to handle the PPP-specific documentation, and we ended up working with customers like Bluevine, Square, and Cross River Bank as their document processing partner for PPP loans. All in all, Oculus ended up processing over 750,000 PPP applications, and our efforts helped to contribute to over $12 billion in funding. A super successful endeavor for us and everyone around the office. It was really an all-hands-on-deck effort, and it was It was great to really play a role in helping your local pizza store or florist or nail salon quickly access the capital that they need. In particular, Cross River Bank ended up becoming a top four PPP lender nationally. And that was in part thanks to the automation that that Aquilus helped them put in their back office, which enabled them to punch far above their weight class and, and really outperform. Moving into the summer and early fall, our fintech lending business started to recover slowly but surely. And you know, I think the outlook for fintech is, is actually quite strong going into 2021. But perhaps more importantly, the mortgage and banking KYC businesses, our newer businesses, really started taking off. And we saw clear impacts of you know, the pandemic as it relates to digital transformation. There's a stat that I just can't stop quoting. I'm in love with it. I saw it on Ribbit Capital's mantra page a while back, and I just keep coming back to it because I think it's super powerful. It's a pre-pandemic stat. And what it says is that less than 1% of loans in the world were made online. And now, as COVID has forced financial institutions to evolve, every single lender and bank has no choice but to offer online options to customers. And Aquilus is one of the core technologies that can help take a legacy lender and move them into an automated flow very, very quickly and efficiently. So I think the effects of COVID are starting to really help us move towards a world where financial services are more accessible, more transparent, and just better for the consumer at the end of the day. And we are one of the companies riding this wave of fintech infrastructure to really help modernize the industry. Yeah, we recently had uh, Jackie Reeses on the show, former number two at Square, and she told her story from within. It's exciting to know that you were helping power them, and sounds like we should have Blue Vine as well. <laughs> yes, we can definitely, uh, we can potentially tee up an intro to AL if you're interested, and Jackie and the team at Square, they were absolutely fantastic to work with during the process, and what they were able to achieve for small businesses, you know, it speaks for itself. So really exciting to be a part of it. Amazing, amazing. Sam, I suspect you have some thoughts around this topic, and that is, the approach to credit underwriting, right? A lot of players have been relying, I mean, all the players have been relying on FICO scores, right? But fintechs are challenging this and are coming up with new credit scoring approaches and mechanisms. And you're kind of in the middle of a lot of this. Do you have any thoughts around the evolution of credit scoring? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. You know, I think that there was already kind of a movement in process away from traditional credit scores and towards cash flow analytics. Again, fintech lenders were some of the pioneers in that journey, but the journey was dramatically accelerated by COVID. Traditional credit scoring really was disrupted overnight, and it became basically impossible to rely upon past behavior as an indicator of future performance. The need for cash flow analytics, looking at bank data, looking at inflows, outflows, 
pulling in other types of alternative data and real-time data to assess the financial health of a person or a business became absolutely paramount super quickly. And you know, a lot of the underwriting processes that fintech lenders originally developed are now becoming pervasive, the broader financial services landscape. And you know, Oculus and Plaid and Finitrity and Argyle and many companies are trying to take advantage of that movement. And I think it's just an awesome thing overall for the industry. I mean, I even you know, recently checked my own Credit Karma account and I noticed that somehow a bank account from 1987 that had a missed payment was listed on my credit score and I was born in 1991. So that one was a little suspicious for me. And I think it's uh, becoming exceedingly clear to the world that getting a live view on your spending activity in those outflows is, is often better than a credit score, which may be stale and sitting on a shelf. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. So talking about uh, the future or outlook of the future of the fintech space, you've talked a little bit of how you envision the road ahead for, for Oculus. How about the fintech space? I mean, we're seeing a continued wave either of consolidation of companies going public via IPO, SPACs, or you name it, right? How do you envision the road ahead specifically for the fintech industry? Yeah, I mean, look, it's exciting. The velocity of fintech is absolutely insane right now. Uh, I mean, just this week, I was looking, you know, we have an industry news Slack channel at our company where employees across the company just post key stories and we all kind of comment on them and so forth. And just this week in the Slack channel, we're looking at MX just raised a monster $300 million round. I think it was at the $1.9 billion valuation. Blend raised the second massive round, another $300 million at 3.3. And I think last week, Simple Nexus raised $100 million as well. So there's a crazy amount of capital pouring into the space from a private financing perspective. And the IPO market is also you know, equally insane. I mean, a firm you know, saw their stock price more than double when they were listed earlier this week. It now looks like SoFi and a few others are gearing up for an IPO as well. I think what's going to happen is the line between these different verticals, like for example, the line between fintech and banking is really getting blurred. PayPal, for example, like how do you classify these guys? They're a fintech company and they're perhaps the top fintech company, but at the same time, PayPal's now worth 300 billion and they're larger than many of the largest banks. I mean, just for perspective, I think Citi's worth maybe 140 billion these days. So it's really difficult to determine where exactly to draw. Except the line between fintech and pure tech is also going for time as companies like Amazon and Facebook and Uber and others, you know, start to launch more and more bespoke financial products. At the end of the day, it's convenience for the customer. Wherever the customer spends most time and whatever brands they're most gravitated towards, those, in my opinion, will be the ultimate winners in financial services. And I think that we're going to see a rapid shift from a world where it's easy to differentiate a fintech from a bank from a tech company to a world where consumers can access financial products from all over the place and really don't have a clear division in their mind between what type of company they're getting the money from. And as someone who has been navigating the entrepreneurial world in fintech for over seven years, what, uh, what advice would you give to rising builders within the fintech scene? I would say you got to move exceptionally fast and that you know, urgency has never been more paramount. Getting into the fintech world five to seven years ago, it was still pretty early innings and it, it was a small world, right? For me, when I first entered the fintech space, the company that I looked up to was, was Orchard Platform and Orchard used to help hold these meetup events where once a month they would hold social gatherings and talks and different things where the fintech community would come together. And it really felt like 
it was a small world, right? It felt like we were either knew everybody or one step away from knowing everybody in the fintech world. Today, it's absolutely blossomed and it's happened super quickly. And there are so many intelligent people around the country and around the world moving into fintech that the space is blowing up. And it's harder to come up with a unique idea because so many people are trying to build and you know, just so much intellectual horsepower is coming into the space. I think we saw that a little bit with the payroll APIs, right? There's a lot of companies coming out like Argyle and Pinwheel and Citadel and Atomic and others that are trying to build the plaid for income verification. But they all came up with the idea at or around the same time. And granted, it's, it's a big market and I'm sure that there can be multiple winners, but it speaks to the point that one of those companies popped up five or 10 years ago. They probably would have been the only one or maybe one of two going after the idea. But today, fintech is so hot. So many people are reading, reading about the industry, listening to the Warden Fintech podcast and so forth that there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity and investment activity. And it's just a, a super competitive and fun place to build a career. Appreciate the plug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as someone who's trying to cover the industry, it's extremely challenging. <laughs> There's just so much going on, but that's what also what keeps it fun. Sam, before we go, one last question we love to ask all of our guests uh, is about your hobbies. And you know, maybe tell us a bit about how you find uh, some time to disconnect and what are those activities that you love outside of Oculus? For sure. So, you know, unfortunately, not as many hobbies in 2020 with the pandemic, but I'm definitely looking forward to, to getting back more into hobbies in 2021. I will give a quick shout out to Myas Garrity from QED Investors. He, he sits on our board and he's encouraged me to, to get my podcast reading speed up. I think he reads them at like 1.5x or 1.75x speed, which I, I don't even know how he understands all the words that are coming in, but I give him credit. I'm up to about 1.25x speed on my, my audiobooks and podcasts. So I love putting my AirPods, walk around, unplug, and just listen to a great book, either in the entrepreneurship side or or a podcast or something along those lines. As the pandemic comes to an end, hopefully over the next couple months, I really would love to get back into some of the sporting activities that I love so much. I'm a huge basketball fan, massive NBA fan, and fan of analytics and the movement towards three-point shots and positionless basketball and so forth. I play in a local league in New York City that I'm excited to get back out there when it reopens. And I'm also a pretty avid ping pong player. We have actually held an Oculus smash up ping pong tournament at the last two lended events out in San Francisco. And I'm humbled to share that I am the two-time champion of that event. It was canceled this year. So I accidentally got my belt extended for another year, but I'm hopefully looking forward to another ping pong tournament at the next lended event. And I'm ready for someone to take me down. I'm a pretty good recreational player, but I definitely can be beat by someone who's more classically trained. So I look forward to that match when it comes. Outstanding. Maybe another entrepreneur will be that person. Sam, thanks again. You are, you know this already, but you're definitely a friend of Wharton, friend of UPenn, and we hope to continue seeing you around. And thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much, Miguel. It was a pleasure to chat. You know, always great to be in touch. And again, super impressed with the show and the quality of guests that you have and genuinely, you know, honored and, and humbled to be included among such great guest speakers on the show. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. 
If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 